Welcome to the Tall City Elections Podcast. I'm Abby. And I'm Trish. And we'll be hosting the show today. This program is dedicated to providing information about the upcoming local elections for our community as we make it accessible to our listeners who are visually impaired. The Tall City Elections 2019 podcast is a collaboration between the Recording Library of West Texas and the League of Women's Voters. We want to thank all of our supporters for helping us make this possible. Joining us in the studio today are Christine Foreman and Dave Joyner, who will be talking with us about the school bond. We have a lot of questions and a lot of ground to cover, so let's go ahead and get started. First, what actually is a school bond and why did MISD call for a school bond election? A school bond is something the school board presents to the community to pay for bricks and mortar. If they need to build a new school, make a major improvement to a new school, something along those lines, they can go to the the public and put forth a bond, which is essentially uh, borrowing money from the public to build the school. And then that gets paid back over time with your property taxes. So this bond is for facilities. That's and correct. So could you <laughs> tell us a little bit about the difference between a facilities bond and how instructional services are funded, like teachers and sure. all that kind of stuff? Sure. So school finance is done in two buckets, if you will. The first bucket is called MNO for short maintenance and operations. And that is teacher salaries. That is um, all the things that you fuel for buses, all the things that, that happen over the year to pay for school and education. The other bucket is called INS. It's uh, infrastructure and shrinking, but it's basically bricks and mortar. And that's what this bond is for. And the overwhelming majority of your tax dollars that go to pay for school go to the maintenance and operation side. In fact, only 12 cents of your tax dollars currently go, 12 cents out of the dollar 14 goes towards infrastructure and shrinking right now. It's actually interest and interest and sinking. Yeah. Is I-N-S, it? I-N-S, yeah, yes. I-N-S, and sinking. In- See, interest and sinking. Okay, well. Right. <laughs> Sounds like tax words and I don't Yes. But I do understand that they're two different buckets. One, excellent. And <laughs> one point I want to make about the two buckets is that recapture or Robin Hood that some people are aware of, but they don't really understand how that's done. That 30% of recapture that Midland, because we're a property rich district, has to pay back to the state by law. 30% of that comes out of the MNO budget or 30% of the MNO budget is subject to recapture. INS budget is 100% local. So any money that is raised by bonds to build schools is 100% local and it is not subject to recapture. And so the bond that's presented is, I think, $569 million. Is that right? So can y'all give us a little background on how we got there? I know there was a committee that was formed and they met for over a year, 18 months, something like that. And then how that committee translates to what y'all are doing as a PAC. Yes, you're right. There was a facilities committee that was put together almost two years ago to look at the needs of the district based on facilities. And that committee was made up by each school district representative was able to uh, nominate two people from their district to sit on the committee, as well as other business, either professionals, um, local professionals in either finance or construction, different, uh, just a diverse group of people that knew about what would be needed in facilities and capacity for the school district, but also volunteers that were actively volunteering in schools, in public schools, and then parents and other representatives were school district employees that had specific experience to be able to give their input on what was necessary for them to do their job. So it sounds like it was, and it was a lot of people. Was it like 30, over 30 people? So the number on the committee was 39. And of course, they met monthly and sometimes twice a month to get together and, and have typically 
you know, up to two, three hour meetings to discuss the plan. So as you can probably realize, not everyone was there every time for the full time, but they all committed to doing the work. And uh, those that were in the room all had a voice and there were plenty of plans back and forth where if the group was concerned about one plan or another, they were able to voice their opinion and then uh, send the professionals back to the drawing board and to bring back another plan or another idea. They did a lot of research as well to study what the community needs were and, the, and what the community wanted as far as the direction of do we want two large high schools or do we want um, three more manageable sized or and some people even said that they wanted four high schools. So it there was a lot of back and forth. But what happened at the end is they came around a consensus. Of course, you aren't ever going to have 100% agreement of a plan. But when you come to a consensus, that means that the majority of the room agrees with the plan, the majority of the plan. And that's where they ended up after 18 months of work going back and forth and uh, and coming up with the best plan possible to address what the needs were, not the wants, because the number is big, but it's something that has been delayed and and not addressed. So we're making up and we're also planning for the future. So what are some of the needs that we have in MISD? And also, what is the the big picture of the plan that y'all are proposing? So the needs are for seats for students because the schools are already overcrowded. And then there's projections for our community growth and our student growth to continue to be on the rise for the next 10 years. So right now, with schools being overcrowded, uh, we have a lot of portable buildings and a lot of overcrowded classrooms. So I would say the number one need is seats. Also in that need is increased security and technology. We haven't built a new high school in 60 years, a new junior high in almost 30 years. So uh, you, as you can imagine, we are lacking in 21st century upgrades to all of our secondary facilities. The needs are quality seats for students to learn in and quality classrooms for teachers to teach in. And I actually, full disclosure, was on a committee some 20 years ago about a new high school. I had just moved back here and I had babies. So, and that bond didn't pass, but that's been 20 years ago. So I know when we were on that committee, we had a lot of questions about what needed to change from the current structure. So I know that with building new high schools and then we're going to shift the grades. So can y'all talk about like, like if my kid's in sixth grade, where are they going to go to school? If my kid's in ninth grade, where are they going to go to school? And then how that, how that changes the district instructionally, like what we're going to be able to add. Sure. So the term they're using for that is grade realignment. And one of the uh, things that gets missed in the school bond is what are we doing about our overcrowded elementary schools? What's nice about the plan is we're going to be moving sixth graders off of elementary school campuses onto what are now junior high campuses that will soon be middle schools. So instead of being seventh and eighth standalone junior high campuses, they'll go sixth, seventh, eighth middle schools. And you're asking where are those kids going to go? Where are we going to put them? We're going to close the freshman centers, Midland freshmen and Lee freshmen, and convert them to middle schools. And so instead of having the four middle schools in Midland that we currently do, four junior highs, excuse me, in Midland that we currently do, we will have six middle schools in Midland and the ninth graders will move on to the high school campuses. 90-something percent of the state is aligned this way. The TEA curriculum is set up for middle schools and nine through 12 high schools. So we'll be aligning ourselves with the majority of the state and allowing a lot of efficiencies to happen. For example, Right now, if you teach in an elementary school, you are a generalist. You teach, one teacher will teach every subject. But in middle school, teachers specialize. So you'll have a science teacher and a math teacher, et cetera. So you're able to move those sixth graders into specialist education a year ahead of time or a year earlier than normal. And so, or than we have been, and that will help 
with education and help with student outcomes. Also, having ninth graders on the high school campuses will allow ninth graders who choose to take different classes, more advanced classes that would normally be offered on a ninth grade campus to take those classes on a 9 through 12 campus. And I want to add the movement of sixth graders into the middle school. Also, like Dave said, it frees up space at some of the elementary schools that are overcrowded, but it also opens up space at elementary schools that will have room for additional pre-K programs. And we know that pre-K is proven to improve academic success all the way through. That's current recent data that um, that we've been learning. And MISD, their pre-K kids just tested this last year to be more ready for kindergarten than other area pre-K programs. So currently we serve 800 pre-K students in MISD, but this will allow an additional up to 1,200 pre-K seats if the capacity allows for that at the elementary schools. Yeah, that's very important to note. Like if you're making more space, you got more kids in the building. So let's talk about the structure. So we're talking that this is, hey, it's West Texas. Nobody cares about high school football and athletics. So when we were talking about three high schools, so Midland High is going to become a junior high. Is that correct? They're going to, it's, it's going to change. It's going to get okay. split. Yes. The current Midland High campus will become the new San Jacinto junior high, which okay. is the smallest and um, of the three existing junior highs. And then half of it will become San Jacinto. Okay. The other half will become a specialized academy, like almost like a magnet school. Okay. Uh, yeah. For, and is there any idea about like what that focus will be for that special academy? Is there like some options? There are some ideas that STEM are or arts or. So those are two of the thoughts. I mean, it, it's definitely not decided yet. It, it'd be a sixth through 12th grade specialized academy. They've talked about petroleum academy or arts, like you said, or STEM, but that's something that will happen after the bond passes in order to meet what the greatest need for a specialized six through 12 academic academy. That sounds like another committee. Well, and community (laughs) input for sure. A lot of community. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what's going to happen to Midland High. What's going to happen to Lehigh? So the existing Lee campus will also be an additional comprehensive high school, but the plan is to move. So when you make Midland High SJ and a specialized academy, you move all the Midland High students to the new, newly constructed Midland High campus, which will be located on one of two land acquisitions that the district has already purchased. So they they purchased land east of town, the Ranchland Hills property. They purchased that in anticipation of needing to build an additional school. So that would be one of the new high school locations. And then they, about six years ago, they purchased land over by Grande Stadium, which is be a West campus. And that would be the other newly constructed comprehensive high school. And once they move the Lee students to one of the new campuses and the Midland High students to one of the new campuses, then they will do a complete renovation and expansion of the current Lee campus to make it be equalized with the other two new high schools. And it will be a third comprehensive high school with a new name and a new mascot that will be determined after the bomb passes. Each school having approximately 2,400 student capacity. Yeah, moving those ninth graders up. Mm -hmm. They're already correct. Pretty crowded. So, yes. Interesting. Yes. And then the big question, you know, for the football people is, 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 are we still, are we going to be 6A, 5A? I mean, I guess the UIL gets to determine that by, but it's determined by the amount of kids that are in the school. So, that is correct. So, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, definitely the UIL number is a moving target. Also, the enrollment of the school, not the capacity of the school, determines where the UIL limit is is hit. And then UIL is based on Texas population and growth. So that number is not necessarily what our local growth number is, but our growth as a state. 
I have a question about the shared campus of San Jacinto and the new academy. Has there been any pushback on that, on having two schools occupy the same campus? Has there been any questions about like what problems would could that potentially pose? I haven't heard too much pushback on that specifically. I, I imagine that there may be some I'm trying to think about what the pushback would be. I imagine there may be some folks concerned about having a middle school and then having high schoolers on the same campus. Right. But that campus is going to be 6 through 12 anyway. The half of the school is going to be 6 through 12, and then you're going to have 6 through 8th graders on the other side. But they are intended to be siloed. They'll have separate entrances. They'll have separate administration offices. They'll have separate facilities. They may have some shared facilities that they'll be using at different times of day, whether it's athletic facilities or cafeterias and things like that. But they wouldn't be mixing throughout the day with each other. And I have to add a mom question. This has been around Midland for a long time. With these high schools, with the capacity, will we be able to have closed campuses? That's not the plan, but I do want to point out on that too, the, the cafeteria and the, the central spaces or the main spaces of each of the comprehensive high schools will be large enough that if you just add additional classroom space, that capacity number for each of the comprehensive high schools could easily grow to 2,900 students without another large expense of a bond. So if the growth that we have projected becomes large enough that we need to raise the capacity of our existing comprehensive high schools past 2,400, the plan has actually worked in that those common spaces could um, hold a capacity of up to 2,900 kids. So it's pretty extensive planning, I believe, to make the, the most use of your buildings and the money that you're spending. The closed campus thing, as a parent too, I can see the importance of that. The placement of each one of the campuses does make it nice for our teen drivers that especially with the Ranchland Purchase, that was one thing that strategically wanted to stay inside of the loop because once you start going into um, farther areas where you have to find enough land to build a high school, you do sometimes ask your, you know, your high schoolers to travel a little bit farther outside in, in more dangerous traffic areas. So that was one of the benefits of that land purchase was to keep our kids safe when they're driving. Sure. I was just, uh, I'm just asking you the mom questions that I am hearing. <laughs> so what happens with the plan if this bond doesn't pass? Is it like if it doesn't pass, uh, what's the future look like? Well, first of all, we know the students are coming, whether the bond passes or not. And we know we're already over a overcrowded now and we need to address capacity. So I'm sure driving around town, lots of people have seen all the portable buildings on all of our campuses. We would have to address the student growth uh, with additional portable buildings. Definitely another committee would be formed to try to go back to the drawing board and come up with something that they think the community would vote yes to in the future. But again, as you mentioned, this is overdue. We've put this off for such a long time. And and as you know, the committee work that you did in 2000, and then to have the bond not pass for a need, and then it's taken us 20 years to come back and ask for another secondary bond to address capacity. Another thing about the portable portable buildings is that that money for portable buildings is paid for out of our maintenance and operations budget, like Dave said earlier. So the money for those portable buildings comes out of the same bucket of money that pays our teachers and funds our classrooms. So if we can pass a bond to build facilities and decrease the number of portables that we have on our campuses that frees up money for teacher salaries and classroom expenses and other maintenance and operations that are needed around our district. And if it does pass, what is the timeline we're looking at? So there'll be approximately a year of design. Right now, the numbers that we're using are 
really good guesses by people who do this all day long every day, and we feel confident about those numbers, but they will get in and actually do a nitty-gritty design for each facility, rather it's a remodel or a new construction. So that will take approximately a year. Then we'll start construction around November of 2020. It'll take about two years to build. And so you'll build during 2021 and 2022, and you will start the 2023-2024 school year with two new high school campuses. You'll then move all the kids out of Midland Lee and Midland High into those two new campuses. 10th through 12th graders will go to those two new campuses. The ninth grade centers will continue to operate while we remodel Lee High School and the Midland current Midland High School campus, some of the other second phase, if you will, of the project. Then it'll take about a year to get those remodels done, and then we'll move people into there. Then they'll remodel the current San Jacinto for the Young Women's Leadership Academy. So it'll take a, between three and six years for the plan to be fully implemented. One thing that I've heard some people talking about is, and just because it's an issue all over the country, is the charter schools and district charters are part of this plan. So can y'all talk about that a little bit? Because some people are very worried about in-district charters not being held to the same standard as the existing public schools. And then maybe talk about the money for the charter schools, where it came from, where it's coming from. Okay. So the in-district charter schools are a new plan to bring in successful models. So one thing I want people to understand about the in-district charters is that we're not just allowing a charter school to come in and operate campuses or operate with in partnership with the district if they're not already successful in other areas. So the in-district charters are a new idea to transform academics that has worked in other areas. So bringing in new ideas, which also brings in new teachers to the area and young teachers that are graduating from school and wanting to get involved in an innovative district, wanting to do things differently because that's what we see is going to move the needle with academics is keeping up with current and innovative ideas. So that partnership in district, they do operate with their own boards, but those boards are still accountable to our district school board because they are a part of or in collaboration with the MISD school district. They can get that those students at those in-district charter schools are MISD students. So we're still getting funding based on those students. But they those district in-district charters can go and apply for grants and get money elsewhere to help with their operations as well. But they they are completely in collaboration with the school district. Now, there are some out-of-district charters that um, have been privately funded that are going to be coming to Midland. And Idea Schools is the same school that's providing one in-district charter and then some privately funded out-of-district charters. We don't see that as a bad thing. In, in fact, working with Idea and having some privately funded out-of-district charters has allowed the facilities committee to come to the community with a lesser bond amount because those we don't need to provide those seats. We know that those out-of-district charter schools are going to be paid for by private funding. So if we were to have to provide those that capacity for those out-of-district seats, the bond number probably would have been a hundred to a hundred and fifty million dollars more coming to the community to provide seats for the capacity that those students that are coming. That's interesting. So was the money that's not going to cost the taxpayers, um, was that like local philanthropic organizations that provided that money? And so they have a little bit of skin in the game, maybe? Yes. So the PSP and 
local private philanthropic organizations did provide that funding for those out-of-district charters. One other thing that's really important, I think, is having one idea in district charter and some out-of-district idea charters allows for MISD to see that successful model that they have proven in other communities for academic success and share in that playbook, if you will, to do some of the things that they've seen successful in other areas. I want to just pipe in and say that I'm more familiar with the Young Women's Preparatory Network because my involvement in trying to help get it here and and oversee it. The charters are very carefully chosen, as Christine said, but I can speak specifically to the Young Women's Preparatory Network. Been around for 16 years, and they have a 100% graduation rate and a 100% college acceptance rate. And that you compare that to what any public school does anywhere or publicly operated school does anywhere. It is phenomenal. And so we bring those kind of people in and partner with them. We're only going to benefit the community. And how are the students chosen to go there? Do they apply? Who has access to these charter schools, both the in-district and out-of-district ones? They apply for a position at these schools. However, for example, the Young Women's Preparatory Network, there are spots available now, today. And so students who apply will largely get in until they're full. At that point, there are other options available. The whole mission for this is a schools of choice concept where you can put, you have your school that you're supposed to attend, your comprehensive high school you're supposed to attend based on where you live in the city. But then there will be many, actually five high schools that you can choose from and you can rank them almost like a Greek, college Greek matching system. You can rank them and if there's room at the number one position, number one choice for you, that's where you will go. And if not, then you will go to the number two position or number three, work your way down the list and make sure we find a, a quality place for each of the kids to attend. What about the staff salary for the teachers at the charter schools? Will it be, will they get paid the same as the regular MISD high schools uh, and schools in general? Yeah. So the teachers at the charter schools, the in-district charter schools do get, they are MISD teachers and staff. The only staff that are not employed by MISD are, I believe, the principals. They are employed by the supporting 501c3 organization that runs the school with their board and everything else. But the teachers at the in-district charters are MISD teachers and they get paid at the same rate. Out of district, MISD doesn't have anything to do with that, so they will have their own pay scales. One thing I wanted to mention while we're talking about teacher salary that I think is really important for people to understand, teacher salaries were just raised and we're one of the best paying districts in our region. We need to be because of the high cost of living here. But again, when I pointed to the M&O bucket and moving away from paying for so many portables, I've heard the superintendent speak to wanting to raise teacher salaries even more to make them more competitive because of our cost of living. And so once you open up uh, room in that budget for people, then you can, you know, potentially pay teachers more. So I'm just curious about portables. What happens to them when they go away? Do we sell them to another school district? <laughs> Some of the portables are owned, and I imagine that they may be kept in in inventory for if a rainy day, uh, some unexpected a growth. Tornado or, or something. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but the, a large uh, group of them are leased. Okay. And that's because the plan has been to get rid of them eventually. You the hope them temporarily. Is to, the hope yeah. is to get rid of them. And so they are yeah. leased. And so okay. then you just give them back so to the leasing expense, company. That lease expense just goes away. Right. Off of the MNO okay. side. Correct. And let's talk, say we're still talking about money. So a lot of our listeners are older. So they will not feel the impact uh, in their property taxes. Is that that's correct if you're over 65? Yes. So if you're over 65, your tax rate is frozen if you have applied for the homestead exemption and you're still paying the tax rate, whatever it was before 65, but it will not 
increase after 65. The other part about money, so let's just, I'm just trying to make it as simple for like people like me who I, math, never my strong suit. So if you have a house that's valued um, at a certain value, and then this bond passes, how much can you expect your property taxes to go up if you're not over 65? Sure. Uh, average house in Midland is around $300,000 in taxable value. So we'll use that number. If you have a $300,000 house, the net tax income, and I'll explain this in just a second, but the net tax income for you will increase. be approximately, yeah, next net tax increase, thank you, will be approximately $5.29 a month is what you'll see it go up. Now, why do I say net? The state legislature mandated a $0.07 cent decrease in maintenance and operation budget or maintenance operation side of the bucket that will take effect in January at the same time that the bond tax increase will take it back. And so they're decreasing the tax rate on the MNO side by seven cents. This bond will increase your tax rate by a little over nine cents. And so you're looking at a little over a two cent net tax increase. And when I say cents, you're taxed at pennies per hundred dollars evaluation. So inch, inch, yeah, it's an equation. Sorry. <laughs> but in short, the net change for you will be $5.29 on the average home per month. Okay. Starbucks or one trip yeah. to Rosa's or <laughs> think about that. Sure. Oh, I do want to address uh, one of the money things that, sure. that is really important. And it kind of goes back to our what if we wait and what if we don't do this now? Because of inflation and rising construction costs, every year that we postpone passing a bond to address the capacity needs that we already have would raise a $569 million ask by $23 million per year. That's an estimated number, but it's based on inflation and increasing construction costs. And construction costs out here. So, yeah, that we're going to pay more for a high school than they're paying in, in Dallas or something because just our construction costs. That is yes. correct. And that is worked into that they the facilities committee really did a good job of coming up with a good number based on all of those things. On money, I just want to circle back to one more time and just say I misspoke earlier. The current INS rate is eight cents. And so that would be going up to 17 cents while also simultaneously having a seven cent decrease on the other side. The other question I've been hearing, and I'm sure y'all have been hearing, is we're going to have more seats. We're going to have a need for more teachers. And so while this bond is facilities bond, and then so do y'all see it as that maybe getting rid of some of these portable buildings, are, that's going to leave room to hire more teachers? I think that there are efficiencies there for sure. But as Christine said earlier, these kids are coming, rather we build them a place to sit or not. And those kids are going to need teachers. So I would argue that we're going to need the same number of teachers, rather we build new buildings or not. And so it is a problem that needs to get tackled. And I know that the district is working hard, coming up with some really creative plans to try to tackle that like half days, one teacher come in and teach a half day in the morning, somebody else come in and kind of take over and teach in the afternoon, teleteaching, all kinds of new concepts they're working on. But that is all taken care of outside of the bond. And the fact is that's a problem, like I said, that we're facing regardless of rather we build these buildings or not. Yeah. And I want to point out that it's a national problem that the teacher shortage. So it's not even though we feel like we have a worse problem, it's really a national problem for teacher recruiting and retention. There aren't as many people going into the teaching field. And so I think it's being addressed not only locally, but in other districts as well. And everybody's having to come up with creative ideas to recruit and retain teachers. And who wouldn't be more likely to go to a district that doesn't have overcrowded classrooms, that has 21st century technology and safety. If you look at 
some of the companies around here, they're building new buildings and providing nice work environments. And that's what's helping to attract them and set them up or attract people to work for them and setting them apart from the other companies that maybe don't have those new facilities. So I think this bond, though it doesn't doesn't necessarily address that issue, it really does provide a, a better environment to offer future employee employers or employees. <laughs> employees, yes, they are. <laughs> So as a mom, and I'm an empty nester, but I had two kids in MISD. And one of the things that, you know, since Columbine, everybody has school safety on their mind. So what in this bond will go towards helping to make our schools safer? This has been on on the mind of the MISD for a while. In fact, in 2012, they passed a bond to build three new elementary schools and to do safety and security upgrades for all of the elementary schools. Those upgrades include controlled entrances where you have to have a key card to get in there. And if you don't have it, you're not getting in. And if you're visiting the school, you have to go through a, a controlled vestibule where the office administration gets to see who you are and make sure you're fully vetted before you have access to where those kids are learning. We'll be implementing those same controls in all the secondary schools as a part of this bond. Currently, one of the high schools I've been told, I have not counted, but one of the high schools I've been told has almost a hundred entrances and exits. Yeah. I took my glasses or daughter, uh, glasses to my daughter one day at Midland High and I just walked right in and found her classroom and didn't mm -hmm. even, when I got back in the car to leave, mm -hmm. I was like, well, that was too easy. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I know the junior highs, the offices, especially like at Goddard, the office where you're supposed to go through is in the middle of the building. It's not by an entrance. That's so, correct. Will some of this money correct that? Absolutely. You are correct. And that's exactly what it will be going toward to try to correct controlled access. We're vetting the people who have access to the schools, to our kids, making sure that those are the people who are supposed to have access and, and knowing who's coming in and who's going out. And while we're talking about safety, I wanted to just, um, it reminded me about the technology upgrades as well. Those technology upgrades that were made on elementary school campuses in 2012 have not been done at the secondary schools. So currently we have kids in our elementary schools using technology that is updated and upgraded, but then when they get into the secondary schools, it drops off. And some schools have um, some privately funded and some schools have been able to buy technology for kids to use in the classroom, but it's not for all kids. And so you're not really seeing that technology that is learned and used in the elementary school being carried on over into the secondary schools. And that that really needs to happen. So I've actually heard a couple of people, It's this isn't the majority uh, view, but I've heard a couple of people actually argue against updating technology. Um, they think it's a waste of money. They think that we should just invest more in the teachers. And But technology is like kind of a luxury. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of updated technology in the classroom? Well, I can definitely say that I have three kids and they all use technology better than I do. And if we don't teach them using the technology that is what's really um, the way our world is moving, then I think that we're not preparing them in a way that they can go out and continue to use technology past high school and into college. So this is not our grandmother's school anymore. We really have to move and change and innovate the way that our world is moving. And, and I do think that there, you know, we definitely want to do things that are proven and, and successful, but we can't stay back in the old ways of educating kids because technology has moved so far ahead. And, and I think that's an important part of their learning. And an important part of the future jobs that are available now, too. Higher education, they're going to have to know that stuff to mm -hmm. as well in colleges and universities or trade schools or wherever they go. You find me a job where you don't interact with a computer. I can't find you one. Sorry, I can't. I can't find you. Okay, so in the phased implementation of this bond after it passes, 
A lot of people have questions about where will my kid go to school if I'm still in the house I'm in right now. So are we, we're obviously going to have to redraw boundary lines, but I, I assume you can't do that, obviously, until we have three functioning high schools. And what goes into that process? So that will be something that's done after this bond? That is correct. That is, we've gotten a lot of questions about boundary lines and redrawing them. What's not widely understood is how much science, time, energy, math, uh, money goes into ensuring that we have three equal high schools. Since Lee was opened in 1961, the school district has worked hard to make sure that we have two equal high schools, equal in size, equal in socioeconomic status, equal in, in diversity. And so we're, they're going to continue that philosophy once we get three schools. In order to make sure that we have three equal high schools, we're going to have to do a lot of demographic studies. Having the advantage of the 2020 census data will help greatly in making sure that we have an accurate count for who lives where and also understanding where the city is growing. Two or three years ago, all that neighborhood out on 349 didn't exist. Out across from Midland Country Club, the neighborhood out here west of town has grown immensely. And so in two or three years, we'll have a better idea of where things are growing so we can make sure the district lines fit in on all that. Getting this done is not a simple process where a guy, a few guys get in a room with a Sharpie and a map and they just draw some lines. This is a hugely expensive and time-consuming demographic study. It's a deep dive. So doing that now, before we know what our population cross-section is going to look like in three years when we're ready to actually do the redistricting would be irresponsible financially to pay for and do all that when we just have to redo it again when it's time to implement. And I can speak to my own family. My husband and I both grew up here and the boundaries were changed because they just have to be changed because of the way the city grows. So he should have, all his brothers went to Lee. He went to Midland High and wouldn't have met me if he hadn't gone to Midland High. So it can all work out. <laughs> Even if it's yeah. not the school you think you want your kid to go to. See? Oh. And I'll, yeah, and I'll also, my dad was president of the school board and his mom called and asked if he could go to Lee. Mm -hmm. And my dad said, why? He doesn't have any other family members there. Mm -hmm. No, he has to go. There's no good reason. He can go to Midland High. So, mm -hmm. see, it's all my dad's fault. <laughs> but he got his son-in-law. <laughs> well, that's a funny thing about boundaries that I didn't really realize until I learned the process. When you look at the map and you look at the the boundary lines now, it looks almost like a patchwork quilt. It's not as it's easy as drawing yeah, west, straight down. You can't go straight down mid and central. And that's now I know that's because they do a really good job of making the high schools equitable. And I think that's really important. When you look at it and you don't really know a lot about it, you can go, oh, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But then if you really get involved and you understand the process, then it's easy to see why it doesn't look logical because it's very well thought out and planned. I also want to point out that when the boundary lines are drawn, the school district has extended an invitation to and will extend an invitation to the community for their input on those boundary lines. Some people may say, you know what, it'd be really great if I didn't have to have go across the loop or however that looks, but they want to go to the community for input on okay. the boundary lines as well. So it's kind of a follow-up issue. That's another committee. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, and I want to speak last about one committee that's really important. We've had a lot of people that ask us about the fiscal responsibility of the plan and the district and people that don't necessarily trust that MISD has always done a good job of spending bond money. In 2012, that bond was completed on time, on budget, and as planned. And there um, has been recommended by the facilities committee, a bond oversight committee to be formed after the bond passes so that community representatives can oversee and be a part of how the bond money is spent based on the plan that um, that is in place. So I think that's important that they're willing to allow that community oversight to happen because this is 
this is needed and, and they want to be transparent and trusted in our community. Like we said, if the bond doesn't, this seems super comprehensive and that grade alignment has been talked about for a long time of, of updating it. And, you know, the reason the freshman schools were built in the first place was because those high schools were already at capacity. So I guess my question for y'all is we're going to move forward and this happens. What is the end goal? What in 2025, if my kid right now is in second grade in 2025, when they're moving on into secondary, what do y'all see as the main, is it just the seats and the room and the facilities being updated? Or do you think it will change an overall culture? I definitely think that the culture of our district by investing in our public education and providing adequate facilities shows our teachers and our students that we are investing in them. I do see that that is going to be a large factor of improving the culture of education. I can speak personally to that as a parent of a student currently at SJ. We spent a lot of time and a little bit of donated money over the summer to do some beautification projects, if you will, around the campus because the campus is fairly old. And I actually have to interject at the SJ. My mother went to SJ the first year it opened in 1950-something. And it's probably the same SJ that she went to, but we did spend some time doing that. And because the new administrator there thought that that would help to increase the student appreciation and the teacher appreciation and the culture to take care of that building and to take care of the facility and, and really change their attitude about walking in those doors. And we really have seen a difference there. So you Although you can't, it's it's a piece of the puzzle, the facilities and the new facilities and providing the space, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not going to address every issue, but in concert, all of these things that our community is doing and our district is doing and, and the people that are involved in public education, all the things that, all the hard work that we're doing together in concert will move the district forward and you'll, and we'll start seeing improvement. Wonderful. Any more questions? Can we talk about, um, I think the biggest thing is, is really talking about getting people to the polls because we can talk about everybody supporting it all day long, but the fact is that our community relies on a small number of voters to really make the decision for a lot of things, especially tax things. And we're wanting to really encourage parents and teachers and young families because they're not high propensity voters (laughs) more than likely. So, so if you, are a member of this community and I'm thinking about all the people who have just recently moved here and they want to vote. Are y'all doing any kind of voter registration drives and what's the deadline? Like that's pretty soon. It's Monday. Um, <laughs> Is that the 7th? The 7th, the 7th. October okay. 7th. But uh, we have been reaching out to a uh, new community members, making sure that they're registered in Midland County to vote. Uh, So we have been working with the League of Women Voters and the Midland Chamber of Commerce. And this morning I was at a voter registration table for a couple of hours and registered about 17 young people that were are back in Midland or are new to Midland. So if you're registered by October the 7th, then yes, you can um, vote in this election. If it's after October 7th and you're listening to this, I don't want to discourage you, but um, you, you, you know, it is important to get involved in local elections. Sure. And even if you're not registered to vote, you can still help, like driving people to the polls. Absolutely. On that day, if they haven't already early voted. I did want to point out, though, that typically in Midland, and I grew up here, and I've noticed I've been involved in a couple of other elections. And I noticed that, especially in off elections, we don't typically get a high number of voters that are making decisions for our entire community. And so what I'm what we're really trying to do is reach 
the parents, either of potential parents, new Midlanders that are thinking about raising a family here or people who already have kids, fifth grade and younger are the ages of kids that will be directly impacted by this bond. To get to the polls, we know that it's not a presidential election, but it is important for every person to go vote, either in early voting from October 21st through November 1st or November 5th, which is election day. And so we're really trying to get non-high propensity voters to the polls because this directly impacts them. Teachers as well, we're encouraging them to get out because they know they're teaching in those schools. They know what the overcrowded classrooms and the outdated classrooms are like. And we want to really encourage them to be a part of this as well. And if they would like to help your organization, what what's y'all's information? Christine and I, as you gathered, are just community members who've put together a pack to try to make sure this bond passes. So we have a website called yesformidlandkids.com, and it's F-O-R spelled out, yesformidlandkids.com. You can also, if you're on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Yes for Midland Kids to connect with us. But if you go to the website, there's several ways you can get involved. As simple as requesting a yard sign. You can make an endorsement there, endorsing the bond, put your name on it, let the community know that you're behind it. You can volunteer to go and make phone calls, block walk, go and and educate people about the bond. You can also donate. We are spending money trying to make sure that everybody is as well informed and educated about the bond as they can be. So if someone, let's say they want y'all to come talk to their club or group, that's the best way to get a hold of you? Yes, or they can call my cell phone, which is 432-638-5671, and we'll get something set up. We have a really active calendar where we're trying to get out the word to everyone. And like Dave said, a lot of it is just in your circle of influence. Once you know the information, once you're educated, we want to empower you to go out and speak to the people around you because you're the one that can have an impact on your friends and family or the people that you work with. So we want to give you the information and then we want you to help us carry the message because really it's not about Dave or I. Um, we have been actively involved and the work we're doing is important. But what's more important is really engaging and empowering the people around you to be a part of the work and to let their voice be heard. Awesome. Thank you all so much for sharing with us about the bond and and how to get involved. We vote, obviously. <laughs> I guess that's the end of the show for today, right? Yes. Thanks for joining us. Y'all go vote. Thanks for the time. Thank you for having us.